Madam Teachers, please get your Bible ready. Uh, today's uh, Bible reading is from Romans chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. Romans chapter 9, verse 14 to 29. What then, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, born with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory? known to the objects of his mercy, whom he, whom he prepared in advance for glory. Even us, who he, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, through the number of the Israelites, be like the sand by the sea. Only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and, fa and finality. It's just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Beatrice. G'day, everyone. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor of Uni Church. It's a joy to explore this part of God's word with you tonight. And it's been great since we began our series in Romans 9 to 11 last Sunday to hear lots of questions from people about the biblical doctrine of election, what it is, what it means, what its implications are for us. Last Sunday, Alex opened up for us Romans chapter 9, right, in which Paul demonstrates that God has chosen, elected, some from the nation of Israel and some from among the Gentiles to be saved. And so importantly, we heard this doesn't mean that God's word to Israel, his promises to Israel had failed, but rather scripture testified that it was always God's plan to choose those who would be saved, not just to accept all who were ethnically part of Israel. 
And so we began to wrestle last Sunday night, didn't we, with what the doctrine of election, of God's choosing, means for us. Does God choose sinners to be saved and then provide means for their salvation? Or does God provide a way of salvation that sinners choose for themselves? Well, tonight we're working through the next part of Romans 9, looking for answers to these questions. I'm going to focus in on two main truths. Uh, if you're a note taker, you can see, see them in the um, sheet that you've got there. So from verse 14 to 18, we're going to see that salvation is by God's mercy. And then from 19 to 29, that salvation is for God's glory. And salvation is by God's mercy for his glory. I'm going to see, according to Paul in Romans 9, God chooses sinners to be saved and then provides for their salvation. And he makes his choice independently of any way that we might deserve or not deserve to be chosen. And now, of course, this this makes us ask all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Perhaps your question that you have in your head is is a bit like the question in verse 14. Is God unjust? Is that fair? Surely it's not fair of God to choose some people and not choose others. Well, have a look at verse 14 with me. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? What does Paul say? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So here's what strikes me in Paul's response to this question. Right? In, the, in response to a question about God's justice, he doesn't hold up God's justice but rather God's mercy. Can you see that there? Why? Why would he do that? It's certainly not for a lack of material. The Old Testament consistently and significantly holds up God's justice. The The Lord is a God of justice, Isaiah 30. I, the Lord, love justice, Isaiah 61. He loves righteousness and justice, Psalm 33, along with many, many other references. So why then? Why does Paul appeal to God's mercy when God's justice is questioned? Well, it's because God's salvation of the elect is not an act of justice, but an act of mercy. God's salvation of the elect is not an act of justice, but of mercy. God's mercy is his costly and his faithful Love, right? generated from his own person, his own character, and not from any merit of those whom he shows mercy to. Mercy is undeserved love and favour. In fact, more, more than that, mercy is not just undeserved love, it's ill-deserved love. When God's people deserve punishment or rejection, he instead shows them mercy as he continues to love them. 
Mercy is a central characteristic of who God is in the Bible. It's a central element of his hesed, his covenant love to his people. Mercy is a rare jewel. I think we, we see this. We live in a culture that has little mercy. At the risk of sounding a little bit like a grumpy old man here, you see this in cancel culture, right? It, it's, it's a culture without mercy. When a celebrity offends or discriminates or acts in a socially unacceptable way, they're met with swift condemnation and ostracism and exclusion. It's a form of justice, but it's without mercy. I think that the rarity and the beauty of mercy is perhaps why Scripture calls us to show love to prisoners. Have you ever wondered, like I have, why that group of people is singled out so often for us to show love to? Perhaps for the very reason that they're the ones who least deserve it. Mercy is undeserved love and favour. And God is utterly free to show mercy to whom he will. Mercy cannot be demanded. Mercy that's obligated is not mercy at all. We can never merit mercy from our Creator. I picture, picture justice as balanced impartiality, like a balanced set of scales. With justice, that the righteous are rewarded, the unrighteous are punished. It's fair. And so injustice is, is partiality on one side against someone, right? It's the scales weighted against us. Mercy, on the other hand, is precisely the opposite. It's the scales weighted in our favour. It's not justice, it's beyond justice. Perhaps you've heard the famous story of Bishop Muriel in the music Les Miserables. He takes in Jean Valjean, a criminal on the run, and he gives him a warm place to sleep, food and shelter from his pursuers. And yet Valjean, who's desperate and hardened, trapped in his situation, he creeps from the bishop's home with armfuls of silver. And when the police drag Valjean back to the bishop's home the next day, Muriel cries, So here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? It's that act of of mercy that transforms the rest of Valjean's life. And it's in an act of mercy that we are saved. So, on a footnote, God does not neglect justice in salvation. He doesn't tip the scales in our favour and just leave justice unfulfilled. That wouldn't be consistent with the God of justice. Rather, how is justice done? Our sin, our our rejection of God is dealt with by Christ on the cross. All the weight of our sin, which should have tipped the scales against us, he takes off the scales and puts on his back and both justice and mercy triumph to achieve our salvation. 
Salvation could only ever come from mercy. And so this is where the question there in verse 14, is God unjust? This is where that question goes wrong, right? We would only look for justice from God if we thought that justice would work in our favour, wouldn't we? And yet that is not our position. The convicted criminal doesn't hope for justice, does he? The family of the victim call for justice, but the criminal hopes for mercy. Don't forget, we're still talking about Israel here, right? This is part of Paul exploring God's promises to Israel. Israel was in no position to look for God's justice, to demand God's justice. For justice would surely mean condemnation for this obstinate and unfaithful and sinful people. This quote here is from Exodus 33. It's from the immediate aftermath of Israel's kind of seminal archetypal betrayal of God's love in their adultery with the golden calf. Have a look at verse 15. God makes this statement to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God makes this statement to a people who are in active rebellion against him. It's not God looking at a group of of loyal and devoted followers and declaring, some of you I'll keep around and some of you, sorry, too bad, out you go. No, right, that that would be arbitrary, that would be vindictive. But rather God looks at Israel, a nation set against him, set against the very God who bound himself to them in covenant love, who rescued them from slavery. And he declares that even from among this rebellious people he will show mercy and draw out a remnant. And Israel's story is of course our story and everyone's story, isn't it? Human beings do not stand before God deserving of his love. Our default position is enmity against God, opposition to God. And yet still God shows mercy and compassion to save. Before our salvation, each of us was a prodigal son in a far-off land, distant from God by our own choice and our own making. What did Paul write back in Romans 5 verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus himself said, this is why I told you that no one can come to, the, come to me unless the Father has enabled them. None of us in our own strength are able to choose God. See, you come to this question of how God saves people And you've got some options that you can choose between. You could say God chooses no one, right? but then he wouldn't choose you and so you wouldn't be asking the question. It doesn't really make sense. You could say that God chooses everyone. That's called universalism. It's a heresy. So if you believe that, you've got to pick a different option. You could say deep down we're all good and we're able to choose to obey God and his commands. That's called Pelagianism, that's another heresy. 
Try again, pick another option. You could say that even though we're all sinful people, God in his grace gives each of us a choice to choose or reject him. We're no longer in heresy. Great job. But, but I think it still doesn't make the best sense of texts like here in Romans 9 and, and others. Well, you could say that every person in their own free will chooses to run from God and in his mercy he chooses to save some. At this point, you and I are on the same team and I think we've got Paul on our team as well. So, well done. If this sounds like bad news to you, don't fear. The gospel is good news. This is not a message of self-condemnation. It's a message of hope. The gospel doesn't press us down, it lifts us up. And this gospel, it lifts us up, it gives us hope which is more dependable, more reliable, more weight-bearing than any other hope. Because salvation depends on God's mercy and not on justice, you and I are released from the impossible burden of putting ourselves on the right side of justice. It's merciful for God to save anyone at all. We need to reposition how we see ourselves before God without Christ. Not as neutral or not as deserving of salvation, but as those who have rejected God and made ourselves his enemies. And it's only from this position that we can fling ourselves on God's mercy. Not on his justice by which we would be condemned, but on his mercy. Which is safer, to attempt to swim across a wide and dangerous river yourself or be taken across in a boat? The doctrine of election is freedom, it's release, it's assurance. It's difficult and it's counterintuitive and it jags against how we're deeply conditioned to think about ourselves. But it's good news. I have a a two-year-old sitting just over there who loves adventure and she is a runner. Maybe you've seen this sometimes on a Sunday night. As soon as the front gate is open at home, she guns it. Like a rugby player busting tackles, ducking underarms. And our house is on a busy street and sometimes Bella goes for the road. And so we talk before we go out the gate. Bella, it's important that you don't run. Don't run to the road. Listen, Bella, it's not safe. (laughs) Bella, listen to me and stay on this side of the car. Be safe. And yet still, with cars flying past, Bella chooses to exercise her free will. She disobeys her father And she runs. So what can I do? I can command her, right? I can plead with her. I can preach to her. Come back to me. Don't run to your death. But she runs. And so I pursue her. 
And against her will, out of my love for her, I grab her by the back of her jumper and I pull her back from the road. If you're a Christian, the right response to God's election is deep thankfulness. It's relief. He called you. He pursued you. He grabbed you as you ran from him towards your death. And he pulled you back to himself like a loving father with a disobedient child. Now, God certainly calls us to respond to his gospel. We are not made into passive objects along a production line that God just cranks. And yet, as we acknowledged last week, it's a wonderful mystery of the gospel that God sovereignly chooses us and he enables us to choose him. Billy Graham used to say that at the entrance to the gates of heaven is a sign saying, come, whosoever will believe. But then as you walk through the gates on the inside is a sign saying, chosen before the foundation of the world. It's not a picture that explains everything, but it's one that happily holds the mystery of God's sovereign election and our response to him. The doctrine of election is God's mercy. It's good news. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said it in his own entertaining way. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. The doctrine of election is good news. Have a look at verse 17 with me in your Bible or in your handout. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. In his wisdom and his power, God does not show mercy to every person. In fact, Paul declares here, God hardens whom he wants to harden, as he did Pharaoh in the Exodus. And so again, we wrestle, right? How? How could a good God harden someone's heart with their destruction as the outcome of that hardening? Well, we could say, along with commentators and theologians and preachers throughout centuries, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is not taking an innocent man and turning him into a villain. Right? Pharaoh, even before his conflict with the Lord, is a genocidal tyrant. His first action in the biblical story is to order the mass killing of infants. Leon Morris wrote, Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened themselves. 
We could say that. But that's not Paul's response, right? As logical as it might be. Does Paul respond by saying, ah, but remember, God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh hardened his own heart. No, he doesn't. Instead, he questions the critic's right to even lodge the objection. Verse 20, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He he doubles down on God's sovereign right as the potter to make vessels for whatever uses he sees fit. He's picking up this strong tradition in scripture of picturing God as the potter and his people as his workmanship. And just like in Isaiah 29 and 45 in Jeremiah 18, Paul here points out the, the folly of clay accusing the potter. See, that's what he's communicating in this metaphor. It's not that God fashions vessels arbitrarily. It's not that humans are unthinking or unimportant like a clay pot. No, it's simply that God's choice isn't based on anything in the vessels themselves. Moses and Pharaoh were from the same lump. Jacob and Esau were from the same parents. What's Paul doing here? He he is determined that God will not be put in the dock. He doesn't present an apologetic for the moral acceptability of God's behaviour. Instead, he just points to God's revealed activity and will in the Old Testament scripture and he says, look, God's doing what he's always done and he's doing what he always said he would do. And there's a challenge for us there, isn't there? This, this doctrine of election, it makes a wonderful test of how we see ourselves before God. We so easily and, and kind of unthinkingly can slip into this dominant self-understanding of our age which assumes human individual autonomy and wisdom and places each of us in a judgment seat to decide if God exists And if so, is he just? If we presume to judge God against our own expectations, if we demand that he conform to the way we would have him behave, we have good reason to examine our own hearts. God is the judge of us, not us of him. God is consistent. He is kind but he's God. He does not answer to you. God makes us in his image, right? He gives us a conscience. He gives us intellects. He invites us to use our minds. The, the Christian message in life is not anti-intellectual, anti-question by any means. God shows great patience as we ask questions of him. But we must do so in humility and wonder not with, with suspicion and judging pride. Right? Not, not grovelling, not unthinking, but with humility. Paul keeps going. Have a look at verse 22 with me. He says, What if, what if God 
although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? What if God chooses to justly punish some for their rejection of him? Even for those, God bears them with great patience, holding out his hand to them their whole life, knowing that they will never take it back. And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the ones to whom he has chosen to show mercy? that the sorrow, the darkness of a life and a destiny without God makes the elect all the more thankful for God's mercy to them. Here's what it comes down to, right? Everything is for God's glory. Everything. Your salvation, though it provides you with benefits beyond imagining. It is primarily, fundamentally, for the glory of God. And if God's saving purposes are for his glory, then what alternative could there be to election, to his sovereign choice? Our salvation can't depend on us, otherwise at least some of the glory goes to us. Our salvation can't depend on those who share the gospel with others, otherwise the glory goes to them. It's only by God's hand that salvation can be achieved that all the glory might go to him. Paul points out this very truth as he he rains down these quotations from verses 25 to 29 from Hosea and from Isaiah. It's God who makes us his people. He makes us his children. He brings out a remnant. And unless he did that, Verse 29, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, utterly turned against God and eventually justly destroyed. At the end of the day, even if we can see the scriptural warrant for the doctrine of election, it can feel difficult to accept A bit like Paul's imaginary questioner here, our minds, they they keep firing. But what about X? What does that mean for Y? How is Z fair? But I think deeper than those questions in our minds, it's, it's our hearts that wrestle with election. What does this mean for the person I love who's walked away from Jesus? What does this mean for my sister for my brother? What does this mean for my parents? How can I know if I'm elect or despite my best efforts I'm destined to hell? If God decides everything anyway, then what's even the point? What's the point in praying or evangelising? Those are heavy questions. I feel the weight of those questions. There's there's someone in my life who I care about very much 
who is utterly persuaded and changed by the gospel but has walked away. Was it never real? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that the doctrine of election gives me hope. I could look at that person who I love and despair that maybe they never really belong to Jesus after all. Or I can look at that person and I can preach to my heart that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate them from the love of Jesus. I can preach to myself Jesus' words that all those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. It's not our grip on him that secures us, it's his grip on us. No one will snatch us out of his hand. Election is a doctrine of hope. Hope that's found in someone stronger than me. And so I don't give up on them. I don't throw my hands up because it's just up to God anyway. This is from Acts. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. It's because of God's sovereign election of people in that city that he sends Paul in to preach to them. God chooses to save and he chooses to do it through us. Election does not make us passive. It strengthens us to action. In God's sovereign election, we find a hope and a comfort and a perspective which makes the gospel shine brighter. It's because of this hope, it's because of this doctrine that Paul cries out at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.